Hello, everyone, and welcome to the LBC Podcast, where we explore Christian theology and practice for the building up of God's family. My name is John, and I'm the worship director here at LBC. Co-hosting with me today is the one and only Kristen Sabalka. Kristen, how are you doing? I'm doing great, thanks. Good. You know, we have actually put together kind of a new team of folks to kind of help head up the podcast ministry here at LBC. And we're so excited that Kristen has chosen to join up with us on that. Are you excited? Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. This is awesome. I haven't been on a podcast before, so this is kind of new for me. Good. Any good recommendations for me today, John? <laughs> um, keep me straight. Okay. <laughs> I will do my best. As much as you're possible, yep. keep the train on the tracks. Okay. That's what I'm looking for. No derailing. Okay. <laughs> we can do that. Also joining us today again is Pastor Eric Burns, lead pastor at LBC. Eric, how are you doing? Good, good. Good. Are we going to keep it on the rails today? I hope so. Now that Kristen's here. Yeah, as long as there's multiple people to kind of keep everything moving, we'll be good. We can work on that. Today also we have the one and only, the elder, the counselor, the singer, grandpa, friend, the all-around good guy. Extraordinaire. Extraordinaire, (laughs) Mr. Michael Sampling. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for the invite here. Today's going to be a great day. It's going to be really good. We're really excited. You know, before we get into our topic for today, we do need to give just a quick disclaimer. What we're talking about today is really important and relevant, but it is of more of a mature or sensitive matter. And so if you happen to be listening in the car or you're at home and you have a lot of young children listening within earshot, Uh, You might want to use some discretion. You might want to pause this episode and pick a time where you have a little bit more privacy to listen to what is shared today. We're going to be discussing topics surrounding abuse within the church. And so for those of you who may have even experienced abuse of any kind, some of what is shared today could be triggering. So just as a disclaimer, keep that in mind as we move forward. Well, today we have a very, very special guest on the podcast. Her name is Andy Coet. And she is the lead victim advocate for an organization called Hope of Survivors. Andy, welcome. Thank you. How are you doing today? I'm doing well, thanks. Good, good. Well, today we're going to be talking about abuse within the church of all different types and kinds. And so, um, Andy, you're a lead victim advocate at Hope of Survivors. What exactly does that mean? What do you do for Hope of Survivors? Well, the Hope of Survivors is a volunteer organization that works to assist victims of, of church abuse in whatever they might need. They might just need a listening ear, so they'll call and I'll talk with them. Sometimes we email. They might need referrals to counseling so I can help them find counseling wherever they are. Sometimes they want assistance in coming forward and bringing their situation and making the church aware of their abuse, so we, we assist them in doing that um, so that, that it's not a road they ever have to walk alone. It's very much victim or survivor driven. We we pretty much just reach out and meet them where they are and help them through the emotional journey. And so pretty much for me, it means just being available by phone, responding to uh, anybody who contacts us through the website. That's great. Thanks for the investment that you're making there. I am curious as we start off, do you have a Do you have a definition of church abuse just to kind of set us forward so we know? The way I define it is more of a a power abuse. Anybody who has a position of authority or power within the church and uses that power for their own gain instead of for the help or care of the church, I believe is kind of my view of abuse in the church. Yeah, that makes sense. Thanks for clarifying that. So here at LBC, testimonies are really powerful in our church family. We care about knowing people's stories and we care about validating real experiences and we're thankful for your willingness to be with us today and share some of how you came to be an expert in this. Um, Expert is a big word. (laughs) I know. More of an expert than any of the rest of us, and we know that comes through some experience. So if you would be willing and feel safe today to share your testimony, would you tell us your journey? Of course. I would be happy to do that. It's just kind of, it's kind of hard to know where to start because my understanding of what happened to me has changed over the years as I have come to understand more about what this kind of abuse is. 
Uh, but when I look back, I realize it actually started when I, when I first met the pastor who abused me when I was 12 years old. He came to work at the church, and my dad was very involved in the church. We spent a lot of time at the church. Uh, my dad was a music leader. He was a deacon. He was a Sunday school teacher. I would go with my dad to um, listen to him as he rehearsed, and just little things, little things that became big things eventually. I mean, the pastor would come sit next to me in the pew. He would chat with me. We would talk. Sometimes our legs would touch, but I wouldn't pull away, and I would feel like this is awkward, but I didn't want to disappoint him or hurt him. I didn't want to be mad. I didn't want my dad to, to react badly. So just little things incrementally that um, kind of I came to realize that he, he was grooming me from the age of 12. You know, as I got older, he would tease me about different things. I remember when I had my first boyfriend and he would put his arm around my shoulder and tease me about puppy love and then tell me that one day I would need a real man to show me what real love is. He would tell me that I was special that God had something special for me, that he was the only one who could see it. So these things drew me to him because he seemed to be the only one who saw these things and kind of made me like I was special in a crowd, crowd of people, that there was something about me that wasn't just unique to him, but was unique to God. And I wanted that so badly that I, I believed it. And then when I was 19, my mom passed away. And um, I had, I was in college, I, I had all these plans for myself, but my dad just kind of moved me into the house and gave me all my mom's responsibilities. I was suddenly like raising a 13-year-old boy and figuring out how to run a household and run his business and all these responsibilities that I just didn't know how to handle at 19. And even to the point that sometimes my dad would actually call me by my mom's name. And people from the church would call and ask, how's your mom, I mean, how's your sister doing? How's your brother doing? How's your dad doing? But nobody ever asked how I was doing. And so I kind of felt like I was becoming invisible, except to this pastor. So he kind of moved in and started giving me even more attention and um, started taking me into his confidence. And I would volunteer at the church and he would tell me all his past secrets, which made me feel even more special because he trusted me. Um, it was sort of this privilege to be the one that your pastor took into his confidence. And um, then it grew into sort of introducing alcohol and prescription drugs and even pornography into the relationship. And what I know now is that he was sort of taking me step by step to see how many secrets I would keep for him, where I was feeling like, look how much he trusts me. And so um, it was kind of this situation where he was the only person I felt like I had in my life that I could trust. And if I did anything to oppose that, I would lose that. So when it turned sexual, I really didn't feel like I had the option to say no. It just never occurred to me that I had a choice. And, um, but I was wrestling with all this guilt and fear of losing him, fear of losing the church, but guilt about my relationship with God and his wife called me one day, so I let it all out, <laughs> you know, yeah. kind of expecting that, that people would step in to help me. But instead, they came and asked me to cover it up. So I kept the secret. You know, they were like, if you tell, he'll lose his job. We'll lose our income. My marriage will fall apart. We'll lose our family. And they were doing this together. So they said, we need you to keep coming to church. We need you to keep the status quo. And so I carried that responsibility as well. But because there were no consequences for him, the relationship continued. And it continued for another eight years. Um, there were promises that he would leave his wife and marry me, that we were going to run off to Texas. And it was a very emotionally abusive relationship. And um, it actually came out after eight years. And when it came out, the church rallied behind him. They accused me of seducing him. They, um, they didn't know how I could treat his family this way, how I could treat this church this way. One lady told me I deserved to die. <laughs> and so I kind of went into hiding. And I thought I was the only one. So it, it was 20 years and probably three years of therapy before I realized that this was actually an abuse. It, it wasn't me having an affair. It wasn't me seducing the, the pastor. It wasn't me that caused the church to fall. But for 20 years, I believed it was. 
And then I started learning that there were more victims out there who believed and felt the same way and who needed to understand that it wasn't their fault, that there was somebody else who was responsible and that churches need to know and understand that this isn't something that's out in the world. It's in the church too. And we need to be able to protect people and help people. And um, so I, I, that's why I got involved with this volunteer organization is just kind of help raise awareness. So did I say too much? No, that's incredible. <laughs> thank you for, th honestly, thank you for entrusting that to us. And thank yeah. you for sharing that. That's, I'm sorry. Oh, thank you. <laughs> no um, amount of years passes by. No that we don't want to just pause and say thank you for being willing to share with us. And I'm so thankful that you've had a healing journey. That's still a process. Of course it is. Yeah. Well, you know, as I look at the church, and Eric, maybe you can speak to this, it seems like every time we open up our internet browsers, or any time we uh, open a newspaper, if anybody reads those anymore, anytime we're just looking around at the culture and the state of the church, capital C, it feels like every single week there's a new explosion, a new secret that's been revealed from some big time pastor who has this secret life or these moral failures, or it turns out, you know, there's all these other things. I mean, what do you see going on in the culture of the evangelical church in America right now? Because yeah. it seems like we're hearing these stories more and more and more and clearly. Yeah, I think, I think two things. One, I believe Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. Mm. So I think... I think this problem has always been there. Um, I think social media has helped us maybe catch an awareness to it. Um, that's the simple part. The more complex part is kind of how how the celebrity kind of pastor has been created. Yeah. And, and I don't mean that if you're famous, you're a celebrity. Even in smaller communities, you know, for that community, the pastor is the celebrity. Right. And what happens is the, the church finds its identity and its celebrity. So it protects its celebrity mm -hmm. uh, at the cost of everyone else, which is what Andy was saying. So I think um, the more that gets perpetuated, there's a there's even a bigger push that when it falls, it's like the celebrity has fallen, which is really the idol. The mm -hmm. idol has fallen. And I, I think the the non-Christian world loves to see that. Right. You know, and so it just perpetuates it more. It gives even more credence to why you don't go to church, why you can't attract, you can't trust churches, you can't trust pastors, you can't trust establishments, and so then it just becomes one big, you know, feeding frenzy on top of all of it. That's kind of what you know I, I see is I get afraid to go on social media, like really again, you mm -hmm. know. Um, but back to my original point, it's it's nothing new. Yeah. It's it's gonna, it's always gonna be there when you have. Uh, sinners in position of leadership yep. over other sinners. Um, so yeah, it's disheartening for mm -hmm. sure because I feel like it gives it gives people false permission to not be a part of the church. Yeah. So so Andy, I mean, the typical Christian I think sees that like like you said over social media and all of that. Like the typical churchgoer sees these big time celebrity pastors and all these scandals that come out left and right, but. No doubt, um, with, with what you've been through and working um, as a lead victim advocate for Hope of Survivors, you pro you're probably privy to a, a lot more of what's going on uh, in the small-time churches, like you were talking about, in the, in the everyday churches. What would you say, how would you describe this, the current state of things in the church today, for, based on what you see and what you're experiencing with other women? I think that what we have right now is that People are becoming more aware of, of the issue. They're not yet quite willing to recognize the extent of the problem, but we have a lot of victims or survivors who are realizing how many others are out there and they're banding together. And there's, there's a lot of anger among the survivors because they were just not recognized for so long. Mm. I think that the sheer numbers astounded me because when I looked at it, at first it said, well, you know, 3% of women um, report having been sexually abused by someone in, in church leadership in the year 2020. And I thought, well, 3% doesn't seem like that much. But when you look at the number of people that attend church, the number that are women, that actually equates to 2.5 million women just in the year 2020. Wow. That doesn't include men. 
who are also victims. It doesn't include youth or children, and that doesn't even include what goes on in other countries. That's just in the United States. And that's just what gets reported? That's just what gets reported, and it, it goes underreported because we have more and more people going, well, this happened to me 20 years ago. This happened to me 15 years ago. This is happening three or four years ago. And um, most of the time, the women who come forward to the Hope of Survivors it's been several years just because they were so afraid of the consequences of coming forward. So I don't think that there's a great sense of safety for people who are, who are going through this or who have been through this. Yeah. It's heartbreaking. Those numbers really blow my mind. <laughs> and statistics are powerful because yeah. they help us as believers and humans to take action. So thanks for sharing those. I'm so sorry um, to hear about the church's response to your situation and to, to hear what you were going through. Um, is that typical? Do you, do you find that to be typical? I do think that it is the most common response. Wow. Uh, the women that I've worked with through the Hope of Survivors, I've only been a volunteer for about a year, and I've worked closely with six women, and all of them have had their churches and their whole communities turn against them. Uh, I'm talking with one lady now who had to move out of state just because I don't know how else to, to term it, but to say that the abuse from the church in response to finding out what's going on was worse than what she was enduring with her pastor. Yeah, I think that's where you kind of see when the idol comes down, mm -hmm. people are very upset because you ruined kind of the system they had built. You're talking about the pastor as an yeah, idol. Yeah, the pastor as the idol, the celebrity pastor mentality. And that's why, I mean, you don't have to have a million followers to fit that category. Right. You just need to be held in that high of regard amongst a lot of people. And then those people band together to protect, you know, the identity of, no, our church is this kind of church, and that would never happen here. And mm. our pastor is like this, and that would never happen here. And so then to protect the idol... Um, people do whatever it takes to keep it, and what, what Andy was saying, keep it quiet. I mean, think of any kind of unhealthy idol addiction. You do anything to protect it and keep it because mm. it brings you value and it brings you security and it brings, you know. So it, it's it's crazy to think that can happen in, in that way, but it's the same thing. And yeah. so sorry that happened to Andy. What do you think are the small things that start off that idolatry of the pastor. Like, it's easy to think uh, I, I would think, never get to that point, but I think there's got to be small steps that... Yeah, I think it starts with vicariously living through the pastor's faith, right? You hear a story, and you're like, wow. That, you know, and that becomes kind of your barometer for um, a successful relationship with God is that um, you're being taught by this guy and this guy... Um, can't can't lead you wrong, so it's kind of your fail-safe instead of what I would call a healthy would be if that guy falls, that hurts, but it doesn't change Christ, doesn't mm -hmm. change the Bible, doesn't change what the church is called to, it hurts. Um, but that's when your relationship with Jesus, that Jesus is the center. But very easily it's like, oh, I could never do that, but the pastor can. Mm -hmm. And so... I mean, it, it goes very similar to Israel doesn't want God to be their king. They want someone they can look at, they can hold up, that looks like them and talks like them, and they can go show the other nations, look at our guy. He's big, he's strong, he's handsome, he's wise. And God's consistently warning them, that's not what you want, that's not what you need. You know, And, and David comes in and fills the role because it's all about God. He's a young boy who, who, who can only trust the Lord, you know, he uses a slingshot to bring down a giant, right? No experience, no right. strength, no, nothing of that. It's clearly about God. When does David get into trouble? He stops doing what God asked him to do, mm -hmm. right? So I, I think that's maybe the small parts living vicariously. Two is somehow that um, you, you believe that pastors don't sin like everybody else. You know, there's kind of this... Um, that could never happen, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, well, it happened to David, happened to Samson. You know, you start going mm -hmm. through the Bible, you know, and it, no, it can happen to anyone. And it's not that you want to look at your pastor like, oh, you dirty little sinner, you. But know that the pastor sins. That's mm -hmm. why your hope's in Christ, not your pastor. Yeah. You know, so those are maybe two. Did I answer your question? Totally. Kind of two, two things I see. 
Are you going to just confess all your sins right here on the podcast for us? To just we don't have enough it was really hard, uh-huh. hard, <laughs> hard disk space for okay, that. Okay, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. Bandwidth. Uh-huh. No, you answer Welcome my question. Welcome to the Eric's yes. shortcomings podcast. That's a different podcast. <laughs> <laughs> what are, you know, when it, it just breaks my heart to think about a church turning its back on someone who has been victimized by somebody in power. Um, what are the effects that you're seeing? I mean, what are, what are the typical effects on somebody who's been victimized by a church leader? And maybe this goes to Mike too, to either one of you guys. I think the church is, um, they're bound in many ways to keep the secret, um, HR concerns. You know, you can't talk about what someone on staff has done. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one of the things that silences uh, the church. And then they, they don't wanna cause harm to the church at all. We want to protect our reputation. We don't want to be that church. And we've had problems in our church mm-hmm. in the past with uh, pastors who have abused their power mm-hmm. and taken advantage of others. So um, I think it's difficult to uh, be honest and open and helpful, but I think we just have to focus and concentrate on the the person who was abused and we have to care for them and their families because the entire families have been involved. Mm-hmm. You know, this whole topic, there is the act of the sexual abuse or the, the abuse of the individual, but the um, spiritual abuse, the, the way it affects the soul is even greater. I think Andy mentioned that earlier. So we have to, um, it just because it impacts the human, the soul of us. It's important for us to be able to teach our congregation and teach our people um, that secrets are bad and that, you know, those kind of relationships have to, you have to be very aware of what's up with those who are discipling you, caring for you, teaching you, shepherding you. The shepherd is supposed to protect the sheep and never to prey on them, but we have to recognize how what that looks like. What does feeding on the prey look like? Mm. And it's very subtle in the beginning. Mm. Well, it was surprising because I actually did a lot of research and the effect on the victims is almost exactly the same in terms of the emotional and psychological response. Almost every victim that I spoke to, um, even like I did research prior to working for the Hope of Survivors and I talked to probably a hundred women who'd gone through this. And the common theme was that, you know, they all felt responsible for the abuse. They all believed it was their fault. They all believed that they had caused their pastor to sin and that they had caused their pastor to fall, that they had betrayed the church and that they could not be forgiven for this. It was something that God could never forgive them for. And, uh, and so it results in a lot of different, um, it can, it can result in a lot of different, you know, just negative behaviors in, in trying to cope with it. A lot turn to alcohol, to compulsive behaviors, to sex addictions. A lot of them struggle with power issues and shame. But like Mike said, the worst part of it is it actually distorts their view of God. You know, because if you have trusted your pastor to represent God and then your pastor harms you, or you walk into a church where you believed you were gonna be safe and you were harmed, mm-hmm how do you believe that God's not going to harm you or that God didn't fail you or that God's not going to protect you or he must love everyone else but you? And that has been the hardest part is to work with the restoration in the relationship with God, which is to me the most heartbreaking Mm -hmm. because the place that you were supposed to go to and be able to find healing kind of becomes your place of pain. Mm -hmm. And so I know for for years people would say, you need to go back to church. And I'm like, but you're asking me to go back into the lion's den. Mm -hmm. And I would compare it to a a relationship of domestic violence where, you know, I got away from the pain. Why would you ask me to go back to it? And so that has probably been my biggest struggle through the whole thing. And And I found that it's a very common struggle. What does it feel like for you when you step into a church and hear words spoken like, this is the safest place you can be, or we're all family here? Um, I'll be honest, it feels like I'm walking into a place of hypocrisy because that has never, ever been my experience. I know that it, there are places where that's the case, and I, I have not experienced 
that level of betrayal in any other place that I've been. But still, I just, I get anxious just walking onto a church campus. I mean, even today, I was out in my car for 45 minutes before I walked in the door because it took me some time just to work up and realize this isn't where you were 20 years ago. This isn't what was going on 20 years ago. This is, these are people who want to help. And, you know, so um, it's still a struggle. And I still have a hard time believing people when they say it's a good place. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, but there's a skeleton here somewhere and I will find it. Mm. You know, and um, so I'm, I'm hypervigilant. I look over my shoulder. I look to see who's here. I look to see who's judging me. Who might know about my past? Is the church going to kick me out? Because you hear the words, everybody's welcome, but you come to believe that I might be welcome because I'm supposed to be welcome, but am I really wanted? And the assumption is, well, they'll take me in spite of my past. And what you're looking for is a place that will take you with your past. So as we're being made more aware of the prevalence of what's happening in the church um, today, what are some things that we could be doing? Like what are, you know, when we're, when we're showing up to churches, we're getting to know everybody around us. Um, what are some ways that we can start to be able to look out and identify when something might be off or when something's wrong or when, when you know, when, when do we need to speak up? I think uh, it's going to sound crazy because it gets into later about the difference between a witch hunt and support. But um, John got famous on this podcast for saying, see something, say something, the airport thing. Um, but I, I think you have to create a, a culture in your church where people know that you won't be laughed at or mocked or belittled um, when you have a concern. Mm. Worst case scenario, you were wrong. Or, you know, best case, however you want to look at that. Um, but I think there has to be, like, hey, something's off there. And you go to a, an elder, you know, who should, the pastors report to the elders. So, mm-hmm. um, and that should create a dialogue. And what'll be interesting, does that trigger another elder that says, well, someone else, you know, said that to me as well. And then your little comment actually becomes a common thread or you're like, oh, no one's heard that. Well, let's mm-hmm. follow up on it. Um, Cause you never know kind of what you're seeing. So you have to take it serious. Cause what I found uh, in our church was after a while, people felt like, oh, I'm not going to say anything. They don't take me serious. And I don't want to be the one who people point to to say, took down the church or doesn't believe in the pastor mm. or is on a witch hunt or, you know, is on this. I don't want to be known as that person. So then they, then they hide the information. And then when an affair comes out or abuse comes out, it's like, well, there's actually 20 or 30 instances, but no one said anything because everyone is afraid. So there has to be a culture that's like, we take this serious, you know, and you can even be serious with your innocent and we're trying to prove you innocent. Mm. So let us, you know what I mean? That's one thing I saw modeled really well is just because you believe someone's innocent doesn't mean you look for proof of innocence. Like help us show you're innocent, help us see this. Mm. And so uh, I think there has to be, people have to feel like they're taken serious when they have a concern. When it comes to the victims, what are some markers that could help us identify if somebody, you know, is maybe finding themselves victimized? Well, there have been some common behaviors that I think a lot of the victims I've spoken to have noticed and a lot of the research has shown. Um, But they're not all definitive in and by themselves. I mean, you don't want to say, oh, look at that one thing, this, you know, because again, like Eric said, I don't think that it's wise to have a situation where we're all watching for our pastors to make mistakes. Mm -hmm. But um, commonly speaking, it's like, do they seem to be controlling or manipulative or are they often alone with one person and seeming to be hiding that? You know, are they making in house calls when, that, when the potential victim is home alone? I mean, I tend to say woman just because that's the, that's the community I've worked within, but it could be a man, it could be a child, it could be a youth, but mm-hmm. is this someone who's going out of their way to spend time alone with somebody that they really shouldn't be? And, um, or are they living what they preach? You know, I think a lot of them have had narcissistic tendencies. If you're familiar with that, you kind of, it's one of those things that I know it when I see it, but I can't bescri- describe it. But I think that not just in looking at 
what are some of these negative markers that make, make your attendance go up, but it's also good to look at what, what are some of the markers of a healthy spiritual leader, mm-hmm. someone who actually is a shepherd, who mm-hmm. is protecting his flock, who's humble and is seeking God first and who is loving God through obedience, who has set up accountability so that he's not just protecting himself, but he's also protecting the church that he's serving. And that when he loves others, he's loving them for their benefit, for their good over his benefit. I mean, you you know when someone is out there serving because they want what's good and right for the person they're serving and not just for their own gain. Mm-hmm. So I think it's just as important to look for the right qualities as opposed to just hunting down the wrong qualities, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think I also heard the question a little differently. Maybe mm-hmm. like, how could we help someone listening maybe identify that that's them and some things Andy said that wrecked my heart and made the hair stand up on the back of my neck was how much isolation language was used Mm -hmm. on your special only I see you you need me and so if a pastor is doing that to you that's a very clear sign should not be doing that should not be meeting alone Um, if you find yourself that suggest meeting in a plurality and see what happens and if all of a sudden there's pushback because you want to bring a husband or a best friend or another pastor or another elder, um, I would I would say you're in that realm. Um, should never be targeted. Like the other thing is if he's sharing his personal life with you and confessing sin with you, mm. that's inappropriate. Yeah. Um, pastoral shepherding, and this is going to sound mean, so please forgive me. It's a one-way street you're helping them it's not there for reciprocation you know that's what the elders are there to do to the pastor to shepherd them and lead them um but when you start getting into sharing like that that's your marriage right that's that's a dating relationship you mm-hmm. share they share you're sharing together you're mutually uplifting that's not that purpose of that relationship and so if you find yourself holding these secrets highly inappropriate you know, so that's just some things I picked up from Andy's story. And I'm like, whoa, those would be red flags. Mm-hmm. And so if anyone hears that, um, you need to reach out and, you know, try to take steps to correct that. I 100% agree with that. And I've had survivors that I've worked with whose pastors feel they communicate with them and they've taken the relationship to the place where I couldn't do ministry if I didn't have you. Mm. Um, I need you to pray for me through the service. I need you to read my um, sermons and help me make sure that I'm communicating well. Like the pastor sometimes um, manipulates to the place where they can't survive or even do their ministry without that person. That is so dead wrong. You're not there to uh, care for our our leaders that way. They're to lead us. And I agree with you. They should be a one-way relationship for the most part. Mike, I hear you refer to victims as survivors. Will you explain why you use that phrase? I think it motivates um, my clients. It motivates them, and I think most people, it motivates them to, to keep moving. They don't, they don't need to stay dead. They can be alive and survive and move forward. So it's a motivating term. And I think there are many who stay victims, but they don't have to. They have the option of uh, healing. One of the things I love hearing um, about Andy is that she doesn't feel safe in the church, yet she works hard to protect the church and see Mm -hmm. its value. She um, desires for the church to be whole, and she Mm -hmm. sees the value in it. She knows she's got enough um, Bible understanding to uh, help her continue to move forward. And and my prayer is that at one point she will find her safety in a church with her eyes wide open. I think that's good. I think we all need to have our eyes wide open. So even I myself am learning a ton right now. Um, Just from your wisdom and experience, Andy, thank you for sharing. And as someone who cares deeply about the health and life of of individual believers and the church, I'm just kind of curious from our pastors and elders who sit here, What do we do? Where do we go from here for the victim to start off with? Where do we go? I think it's important that 
what what I would call that you make sure your church has a uh, a pro survivor pro victim mentality meaning this the church is not a secular workplace and mm. a secular work setting two individuals who get in a relationship even in a power abuse is much different than the church the pastor elder should be the one place you could go and not expect to get hit on mm. that is not a crazy expectation for a woman to have right. that the pastor elder would not hit on her. Right. Okay, so this is where it's completely different. So when that happens, it has to be owned by the church that the church failed uh, to help from a very early on set. And especially if you heard Andy, she felt like it was her fault. Mm -hmm. Should have never even crossed her mind. Even if she had the biggest crush on the pastor, should have shut that down. Right, yeah. Joseph fling, and and it's Joseph fling because you look at that passage. He says, "I cannot do this to God." Right, right. Like he knows that God would not have him do that, and he would not want to do that to him. So even if the the female has um, feelings towards the pastor, that's the one place where he no shuts it down. So in that regard, it, it it's I think the church's job to own that. Um, and then model that and communicate that because I, I think that's maybe the beginning of it feeling like a safe place because you know um, if that were to happen, that church would be like, yep, that's wrong. It's mm. totally inappropriate, not your fault. You know what I mean? Like that's, I think that's part of where people confuse, you know, this is a church. The expectation is different. The pastor elders held accountable and there's a, an accountability to that. So... I don't know, Mike, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Can I say, I'm going to start a thought and then edit whatever because I, it may not, it may not We're doing vibe a lot of and that's fine. Um, so when we met before to talk about this, I was pleasantly comforted to hear how this plays out practically for our pastors and elders. And as a woman, I, it can feel scary to know how does our church, and it doesn't only happen with women, but because often women are the target area, um, how will our pastors and elders handle church abuse? And that coming out of sort of the Me Too movement, mm -hmm. there's enough said by the average man who sits in the pews to believe that that is not, it's not legitimate, or that the Me Too movement was silly. Mm -hmm. And I believe that that makes women unsure of how the leadership of a church will handle confession. So I'm curious, or not even curious, I would just love for you guys to, to give a little bit of, this is how we practically as a church will address a victim because it gave me a lot of confidence when you shared it. Yeah, so I think there's two things. Let's start with um, a, a recent moral failure. Our position was um, the church let her down and that the pastor needed to find a different place to worship um, because she needed to have a place where she could come and be loved and shepherded and have her community. Um, and having them both there was not deemed appropriate or healthy. So we asked that pastor to, to go to another, another church. Um, I think that's the beginning stages. And we walked with and invited. And at some point, that person might decide it's too hard to be there. It reminds me and it comes over and over. But let that be their decision. Not, um, you can't come here, you ruin the church. It's like, hey, this should have never happened to you. I'm so sorry. Um, I think that's one. Then two is out of that, some things we learned was to take everything serious. And, you know, we have a younger staff. They've grown up and got married. Well, as they've gotten married, some of them maybe have forgotten to shut down a dating profile. Mm -hmm. So a single person in the church calls and is like, hey, they have an active dating profile, right? And so rather than say, you're crazy, you're, why would you even bring that up? How dare you? It's thank you for bringing that to my attention. I will check on this right away. 
met with said person. Hey, need to see the laptop, need to see the phone, need to go through the profile, need to go through it. And again, in that culture, staff needs to know, hey, we're not trying to come after you, but we take these things serious and we have to. Um, and, and it can happen to anybody. And so we take it seriously. So you go through it and it turned out that it was connected to the Facebook profile. So anytime a person logged into Facebook, they were logging into the dating profile. And so it was uh, an accident, but you think, how do you, these dating profiles, if everyone's getting married, they're doing their job, but they're losing their business, right? <laughs> so they connect them that way. So I called back individual and said, hey, went through the phone, went through the profile, went through the emails, and, and then the, the response to me was, thank you so much for taking that serious. You know, and I, and I think that's as much as you can do is vet it out best you can. Mm -hmm. um, if I've learned anything, if someone really wants to lie, they're going to lie and they're going to get away. But at least from a congregant side, you can tangibly see that and say they didn't bury their head in the sand. They didn't try to blame me. I was safe. No one knows who this person is. Never, you know, it was anonymity was kept. So I think those are some things where you give a little bit of hope to the church. They know, no, our church will take that serious mm -hmm. and they'll get back to you and communicate. I think our church has had to learn the hard way with a lot of this um, from the way we were structured to the way we handled things. And uh, part of learning from your past is communicating your past and, and communicating uh, the work you've gone through to hopefully not repeat those same mistakes. And so it's, it's sad and with great humility that we're able to articulate some of these things because we know all too well uh, how it happened. And so our, um, on, on the other side of that, I'm really thankful that our church held it together, mm. that people spoke up, that leaders rose up and said, let's, let's put this back together and let's do this properly. And to be in a place in, where I can look and see like, wow, I think we're taking this very serious and I see us learning from our mistakes. Um, that's a totally different position than, hey, we got this all figured out. So hopefully that doesn't get missed as you're listening to this. It, it comes from a, a church that's been there and has tried to learn and get better and better and better uh, to be a faithful church that represents Christ well. Amen. What about for the, uh, the leaders of our church, our pastors and leaders? What are, what, what are some things that we can be doing to support the leaders of our church? Uh, I know our church has done a good job of investing in uh, counselors and kind of professionals that have walked the staff through, you know, how does this happen? Have an awareness, um, having training. I think that's part one. Part two is having, you know, accountability where um, you ask questions of, okay, I've seen this person with you multiple times. Why is that? Um, putting everybody under one roof, you know, when everyone's spread out, you can miss someone's coming to the office consistently. Mm -hmm. um, you can miss that someone's gone a lot consistently. Um, so I think the, the accountability there is that everything happens in front of everyone. You know what I mean? You can tell when a door's shut and someone walked in and it's been two hours and, um, and if, like a window isn't available or something, you know what I mean? So there's actually communication about that. Um, and I think our elders do a good job about getting in your eyeballs. Mm -hmm. How are you doing? You know, but then staring at you. And, and again, if, if you want to lie, you can lie. Um, but just the, the thought that the elders are very aware yeah. that they, they love their pastors, but they could very easily be in a place they shouldn't. And so to pay attention to those things. Um, so that's comforting in that regard that I, I think our elders really do try to meet with the pastors and see what's going on. And Mike, you can hop in. You're part of that. You bet. I, I think that we do need to watch one another and, and uh, protect the church and, and the people. Leadership is, um, 
preserves and protects the system rather than the people turns the house of God into a safe place for predators. So mm. we're not supposed to protect the system. We're supposed to look at individuals and care for them and shepherd them. Um, I think it's we, we're talking a lot about pastors, but it this kind of abuse goes all the way down yeah. to leaders, children's leaders, adult leaders, uh, youth leaders. Um, it can happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, we ha- we have to really, I think one thing that would be good uh, for us to do is to really talk about what an offense it is to God to take power and abuse it in, mm-hmm. in the church. That's the one thing that Jesus, when he was alive, he went to the temple and he turned it upside down because the leaders were abusing their power and taking money from people. They were... Um, They would say that the sacrifice these people were bringing to the altar to be sacrificed, that's not good enough. This bird's got a speck on it or this lamb is limping. You need to buy one of ours. And they jacked up the price like crazy. Mm. Um, And it infuriated Christ. People wanted to have a relationship with God to be have their sins covered and they were abused. That's the same with everyone who comes to church. We come to church so that we can have that connection with God. The gospel can be preached and absorbed in our lives. And we're supposed to be safe here. So having our eyes wide open is really uh, extremely important for Mm -hmm. elders and pastors. Um, And we need to, as congregants as well, keep our eyes on one another so that we can protect one another. Yeah, to build on that, I think building a culture that's aware and safe sometimes we'll get made fun of that we're a little silly (laughs) because we we ask for there to be multiple people in a meeting Mm -hmm. we ask for it to be open and it's like you know i've heard the term that's archaic that's old you're talking about like the billy graham rule Mm -hmm. the billy graham rule and it's and i think we've kind of taken the approach um, it's hard to get in trouble if you don't have the opportunity. It's true. You know, so yeah. supporting um, the structures in the church that are trying to help. Um, we're not trying to make everyone know your business, but it is really helpful if there can be another person in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, there can be a third person, whether it's a staff person or a friend, ideally a spouse, but I get, you know, sometimes it's about the spouse and we're not ready, but for there to be a third person and then also to understand um like what mike and i tried saying a little bit earlier is there's not a reciprocity in this there's not a reciprocation uh it's it's we're going to god's word and trying to handle uh, an issue and try to help that and then also understanding you know at some point um you know i'm i'm trained in the bible right mm-hmm. that's that's what i do it, it it might go down to a counselor and it's not that we don't love you or we're passing you on it's we're saying hey we've gone as far as we can go meaning we're trying to get away from long-term you know counseling where a relationship can be fostered Mm -hmm. and but not leaving that person abandoned that's why we we've you know mike's worked hard in this making sure there's other women or men that can walk with you in a discipleship setting to encourage you and help you and pray for you um, so that you have that and then moving to a, a next stage if you need it and supporting what the church is trying to do to be above board and keep things healthy. I think sometimes it gets snickered at or is that making, is that making sense? Yeah. Mike, I feel like there's kind of a buzzword around church and spiritual life right now that to me feels like it really links, especially for pastors and leaders. Tell me a little bit about the word shame and what like what it looks like for a pastor or elder who might be feeling shame in their own actions um, to be dispelling that in community or in confession. So you're talking about the pastor who yeah. who is perhaps maybe even perhaps things. on the road toward mm. toward something unhealthy. What would it look like mm. to bring that into the light? I think bringing it into the light is extremely important. We all struggle with our sin. We all struggle with temptation, and we need to invite accountability into our lives. And if there's someone who's not willing to invite accountability into their lives, it kind of disqualifies them to lead. 
So the issues of shame, shame is a, a good emotion because it awakens us to humility. We need to find humility. And um, dealing with that with that person, I think as we spend time with them and counsel or encourage or study, um, take that the temptation and confess it and have the, the support you need so that you can resist the temptation. Shame is a gift to us and um, it, it just awakens us to humility. We need to find our place, know our place, know the fact that we need a savior, that we need to surrender every part of our lives to him so that we can have intimacy and freedom from whatever we're tempted with. What's that phrase you often use about the ditch? Well, yeah, no longer, <laughs> I, I say it often that um, no matter how far down the road you get, you're always the same distance to the ditch. <laughs> and um, so we have to be on guard and walk the narrow road mm. and keep our eyes on our Savior and be very, very aware of what we're tempted with and have the accountability in the brothers or sisters to do life with. I think one thing maybe to distinguish is um, that I've, I've noticed just in reading and watching is there's the, there's the predator and then there's the non-predator, right? And, and both you need to be aware of. I think the predator in Andy's situation was very intentional and slow and mm. incremental. And then kind of what the other side of this is, um, it's called the unintentional affair. You find a, a leader, a pastor in a, in a bad emotional state, and it happens to collide with someone of the opposite sex that is also in a bad emotional state, and they kind of become codependent co on each other. Mm. And they, they bring the encouragement and um, excitement that the spouse would normally have, but there's tension there, or it's, you know, it's fractured, and then all of the sudden, you find they find themselves in a relationship where the emotional always leads to the physical, right? That's how you date and it's how you get married. Right. And so it's it's putting guardrails around that your your emotional connections, um, because even then you're trying to be cautious that you don't even accidentally want to find yourself um, attached to someone that's not your spouse, you know. Mm -hmm. And so just being very careful in that way. Um, it's like, you know, when you read these stories, guys don't wake up and say, I'm gonna have an affair today. You know, like today's the day. It's, a, it's an unintentional, unaware, slow drift. And that's why it's important that you do have, I think, active elders that are checking in, that you have a culture where you can be honest so that you're, you're dealing with things and you're healthy and you're trying to minimize, let's say, the need to, to bring worth or value through something inappropriate, and you're combining that with the lack of opportunity, mm. you know, because your church functions in a way where that's not something you're consistently fighting. You're talking about the careless, naive person that falls into it, and I think that happens typically because there aren't, they don't have adequate boundaries in their life. Yes, And so boundaries are extremely important. I encourage um, people when they're getting married that they would never have a relationship with somebody of the opposite sex right. um, that's exclusive. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I would never counsel somebody who is in my friendship circle all by myself. I would want to invite my wife into that relationship. Um, I'm not going to have a Bible study with a woman and pray uh, with her and her for me in a consistent way. I mean, prayer partner issues uh, with people of the opposite sex are dangerous and opens the door for inappropriate relationships, um, especially when we're talking about leaders, but it can happen uh, with just congregants mm -hmm. in the yeah. church as well, mm -hmm. where they're caring for one another and praying with one another and texting one another and it doesn't take very long for it to become inappropriate. So not having boundaries in our lives um, of protection uh, from affairs or from ab abuse as well. Mike so. nailed that, absolutely. And I think the, the common theme in churches is there's physical boundaries, like 
spaces and appropriateness, but they don't necessarily teach emotional boundaries. Right. Like what, what Mike said, because it's, you're talking about Jesus, so it's always okay. It's very intimate. Very intimate. Praying is very intimate. Very. It reveals your heart, your insecurities, your, you know, your thoughts, your attachments. What wisdom do you have as far as boundaries now that social media is so present and our phones are so private? Yeah, to be honest with you, it scares me to death because I feel I feel a responsibility to kind of say, hey, here's here's my life. But at the same time, being careful, here's my life, because it could it could mean something it shouldn't to the positive or the negative. And, and then there's the other side of it. It's like, well, you don't want to be walled off. You want people to see you are a Christian. You, you love Jesus outside of that. You have a family. You have things that, you know, so it's, it's like, how do you dance that? And it's a, it's a tough, tough question. Uh, I think the easiest place to, to start is that your spouse should have 100% access to it mm-hmm. and a veto clause. You know, I don't feel comfortable with that or I don't think you should. Um, so that there's at least two heads and two hearts going into that instead of one. I don't mind. You probably have some good wisdom here. Well, I think we need to. Uh, that's a whole other topic as well. Maybe another right. podcast someday. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, talking about abuse in the church, I, it's very common for people to come in to uh, a leader and want to have, you know, counsel and spiritual direction. And so we have to be very cautious with it. And I highly recommend that people of the opposite sex have a third person. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do that, invite somebody in, even if somebody's um, praying. We we have at times have people who pray for you at the end of the service come forward. If there's a woman there, I like to try to grab another woman so mm-hmm. that we can pray together with her right. so that there's not a a connection just with me and her or with the male and her. I think, um, I just think it, requ- it we need to be very wise and very cautious to, um, as leaders and as parishioners as well. Mm-hmm. I think we need to have our eyes wide open. So I hope what the listeners are hearing is that at LBC we're very serious about these things. <laughs> um, you all sweating out there yet? I know, Whew. right? Um, we take this very seriously, you know, that this is this, I mean, what we're talking about here is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're talking about our gospel witness. And there's, there's nothing more disheartening when you can see, you look at the victim or the families that are affected. Mm -hmm. If anyone has a reason to not love God, it's those, it's those people that have gone through that and shame Mm -hmm. on us for giving them a reason. You know what I mean? And I think that's what's at stake uh, is you don't ever, ever want to distort someone's view of God and, and take away the one place that should help them through a tragedy. Right. You know, and so that's, that's where my heart breaks, Randy, mm-hmm. to, to think through that. Um, but that's what's at stake. It is uniquely different than other, other things that happen you know, sinners in church and the effects of sinners being around sinners is how tight that affects the relationship with God. You know, Andy has done some incredible work um, herself trying to work through all of the issues and Mm -hmm. um, whose fault is it that this happened? Is it my fault? Is it the pastor's fault? And she's written an incredible Bible study Mm. called The Fault Line. And um, it's a great tool. Maybe you could talk a little bit about that, Andy, and how it might help others. It was actually something I started writing. Well, actually, it was, it was somebody had asked that I write a study on spiritual abuse, but I found that that topic was so broad. Mm. So then there was just this suggestion saying, focus on your experience. And so it turned into this Bible study where it, it walks a survivor through the Bible to show them how God actually addresses victims of this type of abuse. And there's examples from the Old Testament, you know, even with um, Eli, Eli Wright and his two sons who were having sex with temple prostitutes and nobody, nobody would do anything about it, so God struck them dead. Versus David, who 
I don't know if this is going to be a bad thing, but if you look at the facts, he actually used his power mm -hmm. over Bathsheba. And the fact that God held David accountable, mm -hmm. but never once laid any blame on Bathsheba. And in fact, when Nathan confronted David, um, he referred to Bathsheba as a ewe lamb, which is the symbol of innocence. She was never held, account held accountable. She was never held responsible. She never was blamed. All of that was on David. Mm -hmm. And then through the New Testament, some other examples, just to, to kind of help survivors see that, number one, this has gone back to the beginning of time. Like, like Eric said earlier, there's nothing new under the sun. But exactly God, how God views them and what he does to restore victims and how he holds the people in power responsible. And then how to walk through the healing, how to reconnect with community, how to look for a healthy church and find healthy pastors. And um, my favorite chapter is the one at the end where it talks about you know, because everybody talks about, well, what about revenge? You know, because you've got to be careful not to be vengeful. And so it talks about how to have godly revenge mm -hmm. and what, what revenge looks like from God's point of view in these situations. And so um, I've had a few women go through it, and it's not published, so it's not, you know, like you can't just go out and buy it. But um, so it's something that I see God using, and it yeah. excites me to see that, that he's showing a path for healing. That's great. Where so, there didn't used to be one. So for the person who's listening to this and thinking to themselves, and maybe they're realizing some things as they're even listening to this episode right now, that um, how could they get in touch with you? How could they get, how could they get a copy of your Bible study? Or, or what would you say is their, is their first step that they should take? Um, I think that they could either reach out to me directly through... Um, through the church. Through the church here. Okay. We can get a hold of you and, and connect you. Or maybe help the survivors. Yeah, and uh, I was just going to say that um, if you go onto the Hope of Survivors website, I have an email through that website, and I'm trying to remember what it is. I think it's just Andy at thehopeofsurvivors.com, and it's A-N-D-I at thehopeofsurvivors.org, actually. If you could ideally help somebody to understand how to walk well with a friend who was coming forward as a survivor what would the best kind of friend be? It would be the friend that understands that the survivor needs to hear a thousand times over, a thousand times a day sometimes, it wasn't your fault. You are loved. God loves you. We love you. We're going to get you through this no matter how crazy you get sometimes because there are moments of just crazy trying to sort it all out. And you need to see that they need to see that people aren't going to run away, that you are going to be committed and you're going to be there and know you're sorting through a lot of spiritual stuff. You're trying to understand who you are, who God is, who you are in relation to God, because all of that has to be rebuilt. And it's a struggle because a lot of times you're having to get rid of everything you believed before. And sometimes there's a lot of baggage that you've been carrying that's just completely false. And to relearn truth, and that takes time, and it takes people who are patient and steadfast and who aren't going to be scared away by that. I think uh, maybe just an encouragement that if you find yourself in maybe some of the warning signs of what's been said, start with what Andy just kind of said, a, a friend that fits that definition to help you take the first step in, in figuring it out. If anyone out there uh, or any of our listeners are struggling or some of this is uh, hitting you and you need to talk with someone, please. Um, reach out to one of the pastors here, elders, staff person. We want to be a safe person for you. We want this to be a healing place, and we will do what's necessary to protect you the best of our ability. I'm really proud of our staff because they've gone through training. Our staff has gone through training to um, identi help identify what temptations can be out there, but how to protect people, um, how you can counsel, what does that look like, how many times... Can you uh, counsel a person and then you need to refer or get into a group of some kind? Um, we're working hard at Laurel Glen to um, protect you, and we want to be safe. I would also add um, Pastor Andy's done a fabulous job of making sure we have all kinds of Bible studies where women get together with women and men get together with mm -hmm. women, men. And either it's a Bible study or it's a purity or an addiction or people have been hurt um, so that you can 
have someone that can say, um, I've been through what you're feeling and can identify with you. Um, because I think that's a really hard part when you're, someone's trying to heal is, you know, uh, Mike gives some of the best counseling advice in the world, especially Bakersfield. <laughs> but there's something even more powerful when someone can say, I've been there yeah. and here's how God helped me get to the next step and the next step. And uh, Pastor Andy's done a really good job at trying to have spaces for everyone where they're not alone to, to walk with them. Really good stuff. Great stuff. Kristen, thank you for keeping us on the rails. My pleasure. I think <laughs> we, it's a team effort. It is a team effort. You know, um, hopefully what, what you heard today was encouraging. Um, even if, you know, uh, whatever it might've brought up in your own mind or in your, in your own heart, however, this topic might hit you. Um, you know, some of the things that we shared here today is that the importance of setting up physical and emotional boundaries in our everyday life, um, that that is so important. And if you need help with that, please reach out because we're always here paying attention to one another, being a part of each other's lives. Um, not just doing the superficial Sunday morning thing where we say hi and everything's fine, but really, you know, reading between the lines is really seeking to get to know one another in deep relationship. This is so important with proper boundaries in place. So we need to be wise and we need to be cautious. And these resources that are out here, Andy, thank you so much for coming on and for being a part of this with us. It's been a privilege to be here. Um, and for sharing your story and, and, and everything that comes with that. Uh, she is a resource. And so if anyone is listening here and you know of someone, or maybe it's you yourself, uh, where you just want someone to talk to, you want someone to walk with you, uh, Andy gave her her contact, A-N-D-I, D-I, not D-Y, A-N-D-I at thehopeofsurvivors.org. So head over to that website and check it out and see all of the resources. There's a ton of resources on there if you want to go further. And as Pastor Eric mentioned, Pastor Andy, the other Andy, A-N-D-Y, has worked really hard, really hard to create these groups. And so there are so many different ways to get connected here at LBC, um, to find community, to find people that can come alongside you and walk alongside you and to study the God's word together and to grow deeper in the gospel. And so take full advantage of all of the ways that you can be uh, going deeper in your faith, whether it's joining a men's group, a women's group. We have grief groups. We have uh, lots of different soul care groups that can uh, help and assist you along the way in whatever you might be facing. The LBC podcast is a ministry of Laurel Glen Bible Church in Bakersfield, California. Hey, if you're looking for a church family, you don't have any place to gather on a Sunday, we would love for you to worship with us. Our services are every Sunday, 8.30 and 10 a.m. You can pick whichever one you want to go to. Until next time, walk in the grace and truth that is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Take care.